1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael from Leadership Bloomington-Monroe County. And today the topic is wine. We've moved from gardening to wine. I
0: was wondering if this was Mary Catherine's Favorite Things Month or Uh, what what the deal is. I I, I, appreciate it.
1: This is a tribute to Mary Catherine Month. Absolutely. Uh, Joining us in the studio, we have three guests, Jim Butler from Butler Winery, Pam Bonin from Oliver Winery, and Jeanette Merritt from Purdue University's Viticulture Program. If you want to join us on the program, call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And our web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. Well, welcome, everybody. Thank,
0: thank, you, thank you for good to be here here. Yeah, yeah thanks, for,
1: thanks for being here. We have bottles of wine on the table. Or Why didn't
0: we be, think of this years ago?
1: I don't know. I don't know. We're, we were... <laughs> We're just we're maturing. <laughs> yeah. We're like a, maturing like a good wine. Better we're slow learners. Like I a don't good know wine. Yes. Yeah. So we want to talk about the uh, the wine industry in Indiana and about your two wineries uh, specifically. But let's uh, let's Jeanette just got here. Thanks for making the trip down. We appreciate it. I
2: apologize. Traffic around no. Bloomington's a little worse than traffic around West Lafayette. Uh, I guess. Then, Boy,
1: that's
0: <laughs> saying
2: something. That is saying something.
1: <laughs> well, let's let's uh, now you you are with the the Grape Council, the
2: Indiana Wine Grape Council. Um, we are housed. Um, I'm sorry to say, here at Purdue University, mm-hmm. um, and we uh, represent um, all of our wineries in the state. Uh, we do. Uh, we have experts in viticulture, um, enology, and marketing. So we work with all of our wineries and grape growers in Indiana.
1: Mm-hmm. So how how many wineries are there in Indiana, and is the number expanding?
2: We currently have 55 wineries, and the number is expanding monthly. I've actually talked to three potential wineries and vineyard growers just this week. Um, we have another one opening. Uh, yet this month. Uh, Maybe 10 more by summer in Indiana. So it is a number that really is rapidly growing um, around the state. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, Jim, when was Butler Winery uh, founded? We opened in 1983. We're the fourth oldest in the state. Fourth oldest in the state. And Oliver Winery was in the 70s, right?
3: 1972.
1: 1972. And so is it the oldest in the state?
3: We are. We're the oldest and the largest in the state. And we're actually going to be celebrating our 40th anniversary next year, which we're really excited about.
1: And we should say that... uh, you know, Bill Oliver just died not too long ago. It was just the last couple of months, and he was quite a, a figure in, in the wine industry in Indiana. Not only was he did he found the first winery in the state, but he sort of parlayed his uh, his law law school teaching background into some of the wine winery laws for the state of Indiana. Correct. Mm-hmm. He
3: actually uh, really spearheaded the. Um, Legislation to be able to allow the Indiana wine industry to really begin. So we have a lot to be thankful for for his um, pioneering spirit, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, Jim, I want to ask you first about you know your relationship with the Oliver Winery and some of the differences in, in the two of your operations.
4: Well, I was a winemaker at Oliver's for five to six years, from seventy-six to eighty. Too so I, I worked for Bill Senior and he he was quite a character and I say he was really kind of one of the early visionaries in the industry so that's where I got my start mm-hmm. and um, since then we've we serve sort of a different group I would say um, there's a lot of overlap between wine customers though there's nobody has exclusive customers but um, mm-hmm. so different niche markets mm-hmm.
1: yeah okay. So, if you want to join us, I want to give our phone numbers again. If you have questions about your favorite wines or about uh, anything that has to do with wineries and the wine industry, 855 811 877 285 wfiu.org,
0: slash noon edition. Oh, well, I know that um, some of the wine that's made in Indiana is actually made from grape juice that is brought in from California, but that's starting to change at Oliver, Yes. Yeah, we
3: actually, um, that is a very large part of our of our business plan, is to bring in fruit from other states. And that's really great, because we can get a consistent um, crop from them, and we can really expand our wine list so that we can accommodate for all the different tastes and palates that are out there. So it's really, um, it's been a really great plan for us. But we actually reestablished our Creek Bend Vineyard in 2000, and I'm sorry, in 1994, and We've actually expanded it to 50 acres now, and we just planted three acres of uh, Traminette uh, this past week. So um, it's been a really great way for us to get back into the viticulture side of winemaking. And um, Bernie Parker, our vineyard manager, along with um, Bill Oliver and and Kathleen, really worked hand-in-hand with Purdue um, as we started to really establish grape growing again in Indiana. And it's been a really great adventure. We've... um, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. A lot of challenging times, but a lot of really great wines have come out of mm-hmm. Creek Bend.
2: So who else is, is growing grapes in Indiana? We actually have 600 acres of vineyards planted around the state. So we have um, a wide list of vineyard growers all around Indiana. And it's important to point out, you know, when people talk about the grapes that are being brought in, um, you know, we we make over a million gallons of wine here in Indiana And 600 acres of grapes just doesn't cut, um, um, just does not produce a million um, gallons of wine. So as consumers' palates are expanding and people really want to consume the product, we still have a lot of traditional agriculture in the state, a lot of corn and soybeans um, that are planted in our fields and just not... Um, quite the suitable climate um, for grapes here in the state. So we, we do need to bring in grapes from out of state to to make some of those wines that people really want to see on the shelves.
0: Well, that's what I wondered. It seemed like it would seem to me that our um, production capacity would be quite limited because of the kind of soil that we have versus the kind of soil that, you know, having been to California a couple times to, to vineyards, it's very different stuff. And certainly... The climate is very different. The
2: climate is a bit different, but you know it, it is suited towards certain types of grapes, um, maybe not as suited towards other types of varieties. If you want to um, buy a Pinot Noir, you're, you're not going to find a lot of Pinot Noir grapes planted in Indiana, just because that is, uh, n- we're not necessarily the climate for that type of grape. However, if you want to look at a Traminette um, you know, and buy something here that grows well in the state, you're going to find a lot of Traminette around Indiana. So we work with other universities um, and our growers really to develop those types of grapes um, that will do well in our soils and that will do well in our climates so people can experience, you know, that local grape um, here in Indiana as well. Interesting.
1: Jim, you look like you had something to add to that.
4: Well, uh, we've never brought grapes from California. We've always focused on Indiana-grown or grapes grown in the region. So we do buy some Concord and Catawba that we bring into the state from New York or Pennsylvania. But as far as uh, most of our wines, we didn't think... you to really focus on developing an Indiana wine industry, we shouldn't depend upon grapes from outside of the state. We need to do what we can do best here. Mm-hmm. And that's been our focus. That's one of the reasons we've remained uh, a little bit smaller, perhaps, than what we could have grown by bringing grapes in from California. But mm-hmm. that's been our intent and our focus. Mm-hmm.
0: Can we back out on this discussion Absolutely. just a little sure. bit? I, I'm interested. It seems um, certainly in you know our adult beverage lifetimes, that um, <laughs> wine has really grown in popularity exponentially. And, you know, Jim, especially you have certainly been watching this um, for many years. How do you explain it? What, what's the, how does the industry uh, account for this amazing growth?
4: Um, if, if you go back a ways to uh, before Prohibition, and, and even before that, we had people coming from Europe with wine-drinking cultures. And they got over here and uh, grape growing was not successful on a large scale in the eastern United States. So it wasn't until people got to California 1860s that a large scale wine industry began to develop. However, Indiana was the first wine producing state in the country. go back to VV Indiana 1802 and they started planting grapes there as a group of Swiss and they were the first to have successful grape growing in the east. So we have this heritage in the Ohio Valley in particular.
0: Well, that's an official fun fact right there. That's That's pretty interesting. All right.
4: But then you fast forward a little bit. Uh, That industry collapsed in the 1830s. There was an economic depression. Um, You could buy whiskey cheaper than you could buy wine. Mm -hmm. That makes sense on the frontier. Uh, Then you go forward um, to Prohibition. Wineries disappear. Well, they came back in California first after Prohibition. And uh, but that was a time period of the Depression. People couldn't afford to buy wine. Then you had World War II. And so you come out of World War II, California is a leading industry, and um, it's mostly sweet dessert wines, fortified wines. And so table wines didn't surpass d- d- dessert wines until the 1960s. And that's really when the wine drinking in this country started to take off.
1: Yeah, I, I wondered about that. I, mean, I think back to Oliver's history, I think the soft wines, a soft red and a soft white were, and the Camelot Mead were the you know, historic, the beginning of Oliver and those are all very sweet wines but now you're into a lot of different things.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting with the success of the soft collection, soft red and soft white and soft rosé and even Camelot Mead mm-hmm. We there's a lot of people out there, a lot of our cu- customers are like gosh I, I thought you only made sweet wines and they're <laughs> awfully surprised when they actually come in to do a wine tasting that we make over 30 wines and so um, I think that to kind of answer your question, Mary Catherine, is that, you know, I think things have changed. Wine's becoming a little bit more accessible. It's a little bit more approachable now. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the wineries in Indiana, or even just wineries in general, try to um, accept all wine drinkers and mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, let them figure out what their palate enjoys. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot more comfortable. I think now we try to you know, tear down those those walls of wine is intimidating, and it shouldn't be. It should be a lot of fun, and it's all mm-hmm. about what you enjoy. So, uh, one of the benefits of having a tasting room is to be able to connect with your customers and figure out you know, what they like, and then they understand it, and then they have the confidence to go out there and mm-hmm. play around with other wines. And so, our sweet style wines are really great for us. It's. Uh, it one more wine drinker, even as a sweet wine drinker or a dry wine drinker, is one more wine drinker for you know the <laughs> industry, and and it's great. So now we have can expose them to other wines, and they can really feel comfortable with their taste. Now,
1: now what's the history of Camelot Mead? It's a it was a honey based or
3: yeah. Professor Oliver mm-hmm. uh, went out to California uh, to UC Davis to do a, a visiting professorship, and he actually uh, tasted the wine Camelot Mead and fell in love with it. He was like, "Gosh, I have my vineyard." Out in Indiana, we're making a lot of drier style wines, and this would just be a hit, you know, really kind of thinking, gosh, there is a sweeter palate out there in the Midwest. This might work really well. So we, he actually purchased the rights to produce that wine and brought it back to Indiana, and it it truly was the wine that put us on the map. And we still have a lot of people today that say, "Gosh, I remember the Camelot mead back in the '70s, and I still drink it today." And or there's some that say, "Gosh, that's where I started," and now I really enjoy uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and or Traminet and a lot of other varieties of wine. So, mm-hmm.
1: now, Jim, how's how's Butler's wine? How have Butler's wines evolved over the years? Oh, well, I think we've gotten consistently
4: better with more experience. Um, when I started in the industry in '76, we had. Uh, the indiana wine growers guild and i remember one of the first meetings i went to we had a wine tasting and i think back to the wines we were drinking the public was drinking then and everything in the country has gotten so much better and you have to run to keep up it's amazing
1: Wow. Okay. Again, our phone numbers are 855-0811, 877-285-9348, and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. I want to ask about the uh, movie Sideways and how that might have had an impact on the the wine industry. Uh, It had to hurt Merlot. Merlot! It had to hurt Merlot.
3: (laughs) The number of people that actually came into our tasting room and said they wanted a Pinot Noir, I mean, it was just amazing. And so, of course, I said, gosh, did you just watch Sideways? Oh, I don't like Merlot. And so... You know, I, I was tempted to make them do a blind tasting and see if they liked Merlot, right, but I didn't. Right, but, right. Uh, but it, I think it, it did change people's perception a little bit. But, mm-hmm.
5: yeah. But that, if anything,
3: it was a nice benefit for the industry because it got people interested uh, in wine in general. So, mm-hmm.
4: Jim, I remember we talked about how do we do an Indiana version of the Sideways movie? You know, <laughs> uh-huh. Who are our characters going to be? And we came up with some good ideas, but we couldn't get a producer yet. So. <laughs> <Almost> too bad. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> uh, so uh, let's go back to the the whole weather issue. I want to get into a little bit of the science maybe of of growing grapes and of, of wine. What is it about uh, you know California weather or that's i mean I, I guess I could answer that myself, but <laughs> California weather is different from Indiana weather but I mean what's what's a good good wine uh, or grape growing weather? what's Indiana not have that
4: Well, I would say our biggest limiting factor are the cold winter temperatures below zero temperatures, and that eliminate certain grape varieties. It can be done, but you know it, it becomes an economic issue. Mm-hmm. And so you can grow Cabernet. I think, Oliver, you have some. We have some Cab Franc. Uh, we don't have a lot of it. We put it in a few years ago to see how it was going to work, and it's actually done very well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have about the same heat summation here in Bloomington as Napa Valley. Um, the difference is they have a longer season. They have at least a month longer when they accumulate that heat. So we have these hot nights. Grapes are out there, respiration rates up. So you get a little different physiology in the grapes. But mm-hmm. So you have uh, the soils. You know, California has all types of soils. Um, southern Indiana here, we're primarily clay soils, heavier soils, which, which you can deal with. It's maybe not ideal. You just have to do more drainage and site selection is more important. But uh, Mm -hmm. we know it can be done. We know we can make, you know, good wines from grapes that we grow. So it's partly economics. But we're still looking for that, always looking for that new variety that's just going to be perfect here. And and the whole key to it is really – finding the grape varieties that do best where you are. And Pinot Noir in the Pacific Northwest, you know, California's cabs. uh, But you go around the world, every region should have its best wines that you can make. We don't all have to make the same wine. I think that's the most important point.
5: Mm
1: -hmm. All right, we have a phone call. Let's go to uh, Pete on the phone. Pete? Hello. Hi, Pete. Hi, beautiful day. Thanks for having me on the air. Um, I'm not a teetotaler by any means, but since this is essentially a public uh, commercial for a <clears throat> an intoxicating poison, uh, I wonder what the local vineyards and or the industry in general does to promote uh, safe consumption. All right. Good question.
2: Every promotion I do. Um, and I will say uh, very upfront, um, in 1999, I lost a grandfather to a drunk driver. Um, so I am very sensitive to this issue. I want people to um, understand that, you know, we are adults and we all should be able to um, drink with moderation. Um, when you enter a winery around the state, obviously you will be asked for your identification. And all of our wineries have the right of refusal, just like any um, other establishment you might um, visit. So we are encouraging people to um, drink responsibly, bring a designated driver. You know, there are festivals around the state that encourage that as well. Um, so we are um, very aware of um, the responsibility that goes with that, but um, also realizing that. People are adults, and, you know, they they have to take some of that upon themselves, too. Mm-hmm.
6: And I think
3: also arming your staff with the appropriate tools to be able to handle situations and be responsible servers is really important for us, especially as Oliver Winery grows. Um, we want to make sure that our, our staff feel comfortable and making sure that they are 100 percent aware of, serving wine to our customers, and the training has a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. But then also there's small guidelines that some wineries can put into action, and one that uh, we have had, especially because we have some of the larger events, is we allow one bottle of wine per two people for actually enjoying on the grounds. And there's times that people will look at us like, gosh, why are you limiting my consumption? But it's important for us. We're on a busy state road. And so mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. want to make sure that this is a, a, a nice place to come that everyone can enjoy, and one bad situation is not going to ruin it for everybody. So, mm-hmm.
5: Thank you.
1: All
4: right. Jim? I think if you look at the statistics, wine probably has uh, the least incident of drunk driving compared to beer and liquors. Um, wineries are not generally open after 6 or 8 o'clock in the evening. Um, it's a different atmosphere. And wine is made to be consumed with food. It's part of the meal. And that and that's sort of puts in a little different light.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I know uh, I've uh, a friend of mine has a daughter who's going through training at Oliver for being – for. Being a whatever you call them, people that help.
3: Sure, one of our teaching a staff, staff, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: And and apparently it's a pretty rigorous uh, training, like four weeks or something. Or
3: you are correct. Yes, yes. four <laughs> weeks of training. We actually have. Um, we just hired a new set of staff, and they're finishing up their their training. Mm-hmm. And it truly is about three to four weeks, and it goes from everywhere from really their their first exposure of training is just straight up with Bill Oliver and Dennis Dunham, who are our winemakers, so that they can understand the our winemaking philosophy and that we are going to build their foundation of just winemaking in general. Because we want our customers to come in and feel like they're talking to the winemakers, even though we have, you know, 35 to 40 great tasting room staff that are, we want them to be an extension of our winemakers. And mm-hmm. um, that training is really important for us. So everywhere from customer service all the way to uh, responsible, um, responsible serving.
1: Yeah, I was sort of part of my question was you. you I, I assume give them that same, you know, what to look for in a in a customer that's in there that maybe you should kind of cut off. And,
3: yep, exactly. And, and our all of our managers help support.
1: And Jim, as well. you, you have the same kind of training. Yeah, everybody in the states required to have server
4: training now, and so we do instruct our employees, and they're certified. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I, I also have a question about you know the location. You know, there are fifty five wineries, but two in Bloomington, great college town, uh, do you get a lot of students that come out and just sort of want to, you know, taste a lot of free wines? And
4: Well, it, it appears to me that the student population is first a beer drinking population, yeah. and as they get older, they get a little more mature, they might gravitate towards wine. But I think younger people in general have much more experience with wine than they did say 20 years ago, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. much more sophisticated.
2: Mm-hmm. We, have, we have a winery in West Lafayette, mm-hmm. um, so also, you know, right there near Purdue. And I think what that winery is finding is that the students bring their parents when the parents are visiting because they want to impress mom and dad. Uh-huh. And so when the parents are in town and maybe have the credit card with them, um, you know, they're able to take those um, their parents over there and hopefully, you know, con their parents into buying them some wine while they're there. But, you know, really to impress mom and dad and, and show them um, what, what there is to offer there. So um, I think that's been an interesting, interesting thing to see is um, as our 21-year-olds and our graduating college students really want to show mom and dad what's going on.
1: Right. Okay. I, I wanted to, to get back to Indiana grapes for a minute because, you know, when you go into a to a, a big store and there are lots, you know, you, there are the typical wines, you know, you, you find the, the Cabernet or the Chardonnay or or whatever, but there are a lot of grapes that are grown here. You keep mentioning Tremonette, I think, and there's, I don't know, what what are some of the grapes that, that you make wines out of in Indiana that are kind of unique to Indiana?
4: Well, the the primary ones I think you find for the whites are going to be Tramonet, um Vignole, Vidal, uh, there's Saval Blanc. Um, there's probably some others. Chamberson. Chamberson for reds, mm-hmm. uh, Foch. Um, mm-hmm. So there are 2,000 grape varieties in the world, mm-hmm. and we really see a very slim section of that.
1: Yeah, and what are what are the characteristics of those particular grapes and wines, and how do they compare to say, uh, which one of those might compare to a Cabernet, or which one might compare to a Chardonnay, or a Sauvignon Blanc, or whatever.
2: It's always I fun like I know what I'm talking about. It's always fun to start with, um, you know, we, we promote Tremonette a lot here in the state as a grape that grows well. And so for people who come in, you know, they're familiar with Gewurztraminer or Riesling. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where they've started drinking. Um, Tramonette compares very well to that. It's um, something that offers um, those same characteristics that you would get out of Gewurztraminer. As it's, it's a hybrid, so it's a cross from a Gewurztraminer grape. So um, I think that offers one of the best experiences for people who have never been to a tasting room who've maybe only bought their wine from the liquor store shelves or the grocery store shelves, going into an Indiana winery and saying, you know what, I drink this. What do you have that's like this? And the winemakers, you know, or the the tasting room staff can guide and direct you into, you know, if if you like Cabernet, maybe you're going to like the winery Chamberson. Maybe it offers some similar characteristics. So people should never be intimidated into going into a winery because really get that one-on-one time to say, here's what I'm drinking at home and what can I buy here that's similar to that. Mm
3: -hmm. And at Creek Bend, we actually... We we have three different types of grapes, I guess you could say. There's the European vinifera grapes that are very much like the grapes, like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, the main more mainstream wines that are out there that people are very familiar with. And there's the interspecific hybrids, like Jeanette was talking about, or uh, like like mm-hmm. uh Chardonnay is another great example. Then there's the grapes that are native to North America, which would be like Catawba and Concord. So it's so interesting to see there's these different species of grapes. And the interspecific hybrids are really interesting to learn about because they're actually a cross between those two other types of species of grapes. So you're going to get those really great winemaking characteristics that you want. For example, from a grape like Chardonnay, you're going to get those really great winemaking characteristics from the Chardonnay parentage. And then you're also going to get the really great, you know, the cold hardiness and disease resistance and what we need uh, in a grape to actually survive our weather. Not really survive, but to, to uh, flourish in our in our in our environment here so those interspecific hybrids right, i think are a really interesting thing but new for a lot of people
0: and sometimes yeah. can be a challenge mm-hmm. so the plant can be a hybrid but <clears throat> then i also noticed that as i'm looking at wines that there are often um blends um of different wines is that a common practice yeah, it's
4: very common i think um we'll probably see more and more blending but you get more depth of character often when you do blends um, In Europe, traditionally, most wines were blends. And then the Europeans brought their wine names over here, and uh, we can't call our wines Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. So in this country, we went to varietal labeling, and uh, that's why we're a little different than the European labeling situation. Mm -hmm. But you see a lot of blends and proprietary names now.
1: We're going to take one phone call before we go to our break, and it's Ted. Ted? Hi. Hi.
4: Uh, call me just a little naive or something, but if you import grape juice from someplace else and make it into wine, how can you possibly call it Indiana wine? Jim? Craft. Um, well, <clears throat> it's federal labeling laws that control it. It's very confusing. Um, so i got to make sure I get this right. If you bring a juice in or grapes in from out of state and use the varietal name... You have to put on the label for sale in Indiana only, which exempts you from interstate commerce laws dealing in alcoholic beverages. So if we buy chambersin from Kentucky, we have to say chambersin and on the label uh, for sale in Indiana only. If it's grown in Indiana, then we can use the name chambersin and not put for sale in Indiana only. Mm-hmm. So that's just one of the regulations, and, and
3: there's certain wines that we actually produce that we are purchasing the fruit from out of state and even from the East Coast. Like for example, our soft red. It's made from Concord fruit. We actually cannot put on the label, or the wine cannot be called Concord wine. It's actually we have to we have our own brand name for that, which is Soft Red, so that we can distribute it outside of the state of Indiana, because there's a lot of different label um, regulations depending on where the fruit actually originates from. So. Mm-hmm.
4: It, oh. Okay, and I suspect that also explains why I
1: can't order wine from some other state and have it shipped in.
4: That's a different set
3: of yeah. laws. Yeah, <laughs> it's totally different.
1: But yeah. <laughs> but, uh-huh. yeah, but uh, Ted, I mean, you're, you, so you're, you are you were asking basically how can you call it Indiana wine, maybe a, a little bit like if a company's producing, a, a, I don't know, a car or making anything here and some of the raw material comes from out of state. It's uh-huh. still being produced in Indiana. Now
4: yeah, the difference okay, really is Indiana yeah. produced, and they mean produced by fermentation. So the fermentation mm-hmm. takes here takes place here versus Indiana grown. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's oh. the difference.
0: Okay. Yeah, the production, the craft aspect of of making the wine from raw materials takes place in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Right.
4: So you do okay, have to read your so. labels closely. Ah, so
5: I shouldn't re-
6: shouldn't feel totally confused.
1: No.
3: (laughs) Well, well, we hope
1: you're less confused now.
0: (laughs) I think it's interesting. I I I hope so too.
1: (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much. All right, Is
0: the traditional grape that maybe the you know a gardener would grow? Is that a Concord? Okay. All right.
1: All right. We're going to have to take a short break. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about wine. If you want to join us in the second half of the show, eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, 877-285-9348. For, for all of you wine drinkers outside of Bloomington and WFIU.org Noon Edition, we'll be right back. All right. Some ambient sound <laughs> for our program today. <laughs> this is Bob Zaltzberg along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. It's, uh, and welcome back to Noon Edition, our wine show today. Jim Butler from Butler Winery is here. Uh, he's got a... Nice corkscrew. Uh, That was Jeanette Merritt from Purdue, (laughs) (laughs) Purdue's Viticulture Program, and Pam Bonin from Oliver Winery. All three of our guests, uh, well-versed in wines. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or call toll-free 877-285-9348 and wfiu.org slash noon edition. And that, in fact, is uh, wine being poured in the WFIU studios.
0: <laughs> life is good
1: Right now. Life is good, but, but we so are. So what being are we doing? Are we,
0: are we? What are we? How are we going? Is this like a, a wine tasting one-on-one? You're going to teach us how to taste wine.
2: I love this. Thank you. All right.
1: Yes. Okay. So, um, Jeanette, you want to start us off here? Just.
2: Well, this is Jim's wine. Okay. Um, so I'll let him describe the wine, but I'll first tell you a little bit of background about. Um, why we're pouring Tremonette for you today. We've talked a little bit about it. Um, In November of 2009, the Indiana State Department of Agriculture, along with the Indiana Wine Grape Council and the Indiana Wine Industry, decided um, we needed a signature wine for the state. If we could have a state pie and a state bird and a state tree and a state song (laughs) and all those other things, um, we could have a grape that our industry would get behind and promote. So with the help from the industry, um, we... Uh, Launched Tremonette as our signature grape in Indiana. And as we've talked a little bit about, that's a grape that grows well in the state. It was something our vineyards and our growers were already doing very well. And it really was a place that we hope, um, you know, for people who were either very familiar with wine or really didn't know much about wine, it'd be a starting point for some of those people. Mm -hmm. So it's a white wine, and we have about 33 of our wineries making it at this point. And uh, we're, we're just very proud of the program and, and what it's done to raise awareness for the Indiana wine industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Jim, your first move was to, s- to smell the wine. Tell right. us what's going on there.
4: Well, you want to know what the aroma is. And, you know, like 80% of your what we think of as taste is actually aroma. <laughs> and so you're going to get all the floral characters.
0: It smells like summer to me.
4: Yeah. The Traminette grape is a very floral, um, rosy quality to it, and a little bit of a citrus, I would say, a little lemony citrus Mm -hmm. to it. Very fresh, good springtime, good summer, good
1: deck wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very refreshing. Mm
0: -hmm. Very nice. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, we're drinking.
2: Now, would this be served chilled?
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Though,
2: one of the questions I get a lot is how cold or warm should my wine be? And a very basic standard answer I give people is you do not take your wine straight out of the refrigerator and pour it in your glass. Because if it is that cold, you're not not going to get the flavors, you're not going to get the aromas out of it. So for white wine, I always tell people take it out of the refrigerator 20 minutes before you're going to serve it. And for red wine, put it in the refrigerator 20 minutes before you're going to serve it. And really, I think that brings both of your wines up to an, an ideal temperature for, for where they should be served. But never take it straight out of the fridge and just drink it, because you just don't get the wine the way it should be. Okay. You I'm do just... that with beer, I guess. <laughs> yeah. right. well, we,
1: we tell people you can drink it any way you want. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're drinking to our phone callers. We have two on the line. Stan. Here's to Stan. Nice. Stan?
5: Hi. I've got a, a basic question. We've been um, getting some wines with screw tops, and I know it, it doesn't provide the uh, panache
6: for service,
5: but it's a lot
4: more reliable than cork, and I hate the synthetic corks. I break uh,
5: corkscrews on them. Uh, have your wineries uh, decided to go completely that way, or, or what are the issues?
3: I'm really glad that you're a supporter of screw caps. We often get people who are a little bit more skeptical of them. So for me, this is exciting to talk to someone who totally supports it, which is great. Um, We actually have two wines currently that are in screw cap. It's our Bean Blossom Hard Cider and our Muscat Canelli, actually, which is now Moscato. Um, And they both have a little bit of an effervescence. So that was kind of our first um, step down that path of bottling with screw caps. And it's been really great for us. I think screw caps are beneficial for the quality of the wine. And it helps keep the fruit intact. And it helps the winemaker present a wine to taste the way it wants to taste without any other... um, obstacles, I guess there could be premature oxidation because, uh, you know, sure. corks obviously could not be 100 percent reliable and oxygen yeah. can get through there. So that's one challenge. Um, and they're e- it's easy if you ever run a picnic or, you know, it's, sometimes it's just appropriate.
0: And, and I Who think, hasn't had the heartache of the bottle of wine without the corkscrew? That is the definition <laughs> of frustration.
4: Plan ahead.
0: So it's been great. It's been great for us. And
3: we actually, um, a lot of our wines that, Uh, Most people are familiar with our soft collection and our harvest flavors are going down that path uh, to be in screw cap. So we're really excited about it. Not all of our wines will be bottled in screw cap because I think there is a bit of romance in in some, uh, not even some, but there's definite advantages for certain styles of wines to still be in cork. So uh, we are taking on our sweeter style wines that really uh, need to capture that fruit tone.
4: May I make make a suggestion for for those who...
5: um have some reservations about the screw cap. I think presentation with a gold-plated pair of pliers and a, and a towel over the arm might might help overcome that. <laughs> Stan,
0: I can tell you're at class act. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Thank you.
1: All right, Stan. Thanks a lot for the call eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight and wfiu dot org slash noon edition. I'm glad Stan asked that question because I had that same question. It does seem like I mean, has the technology just caught up in terms of of the being able to to use a screw cap because that did used to be like ooh boy if you saw a bottle with a screw cap you didn't want any part of it
2: technology and perception, really, because as you say, you know, you used to see screw cap wine and think, hmm, what's actually yeah. in the bottle? And, um, you know, the same thing goes for a lot of other closures, too. You, sometimes you see box wine and you think, hmm, should I really be buying boxed wine? However, if you look at a lot of those box wines, um, those are some metal-winning wines, and, and there's some really good things behind that. There's just all sorts of new packaging availabilities, and um, I always tell people never be afraid of how things are enclosed um, because uh, there's just new ways to do things. And, and technology changes and, and everything just catches up with itself.
1: All right, well let's go back to the phones and Maureen, Maureen.
2: Uh, yes, um, I would
6: like to speak with a gentleman who represents the industry in Indiana.
1: I guess Jim would be that. Okay
6: person. okay. Um, Jim. I am a very old French woman, and um, I was wondering how one would go about becoming a judge of Indiana Wines.
4: A judge at the State Fair Wine Competition? For example,
6: or or any other way?
2: I'll actually take that question, because um, it is my office that runs the Indiana National Wine Competition, um, and we do run that out of Purdue, and I... Um, would welcome your information, though I would have to tell you you're on a waiting list of about 100 other people that want to be judges for the competition. Really? Um, it is a very popular job, um, <laughs> yeah, an underpaid job because um, our judges do this for free. Um, but it is, uh, we do work with winemakers, wine writers, um, wine educators from all around the country and all around the world to come in um, to judge the wine competition. Uh, mm-hmm. We have 55 judges a year. Um, we run it out of Purdue, and we get about 3,000 wine entries from around the world. Um, so our judges uh, tend to be people we've worked with in the past, um, though you're always welcome to go on the website, org and drop us a note, and um, we can always add your name to the hat, and uh, maybe down the road we would have services for a French woman. Do you okay. have any
4: qualifications people
2: have My to meet? My
6: qualification would be mm-hmm. that uh, ever since I was a child, I have learned to, to drink wine in a responsible fashion and with what kind of foods, etc., mm. and at the right temperature, etc. Uh, for example, when we say chambre, uh, uh, room temperature. Um, Originally, the rooms were not heated or not very much, so it doesn't mean that it has to be warm, and um, I don't agree with putting the red wine in the refrigerator, (laughs) (laughs) but that's something else.
2: Um, One thing we do recommend for our judges is that they have an appreciation for wine from all across the world, because um, our judges will at one point be drinking, you know, maybe some of the finest Bordeaux's um, from regions you're familiar with, and then the Mm -hmm. next flight may be drinking apple wine um, from some wineries, you know, from Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is uh, something we have to bring people in who understand a little bit about everything and can appreciate a little bit about everything.
6: Yeah, that would be me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not (laughs) Maureen. I have a question for you. So when you were growing up in uh, France, did you drink start drinking wine with meals when you were very young?
6: Exactly. Mm-hmm. In fact, when we were very, very young, we used to drink what my mother called eau rosé, which means pink water. And we were told about the wine that we were drinking, but it was in the water.
1: Oh, okay.
6: Yeah, it was a mixture, but we, you could still taste
1: it. mm mm-hmm. All right.
0: Mm-hmm. You All right. Develop that palette early.
1: That's right. All right. Well you have the uh you have the noon edition endorsement for being a judge. Thank you for calling. <laughs> Very good. Mm-hmm. All right.
6: Okay, so what was that address that I'm supposed to apply to She'd like the address? IndyInternational.org.
0: international dot Indy international dot org. International
6: dot org. Indy.
0: I-N-D-Y. Indy international.
6: Two words or one word.
0: Two words or one word. One. One
6: word. International
0: Dot .org, O-R-G.
6: Okay, thank
0: you. Thank you thank for you calling. Morning. Bye.
1: Bye. All yep. right. Well, we have a, before we go to the phones, you've just poured another mm. little taste. You want to describe uh-huh. that,
4: Laura? This is the Chamberson Rosé, and uh, Chamberson's the main red, main red grape that we grow, and this is made from what's called the free-run juice. So when you crush the grapes, this is the juice that comes out without being pressed.
0: Ah. Mm -hmm.
4: And so you get the lighter color. It's the traditional French rosé production method.
0: And we're swirling. We want to aerate this one a little bit.
4: Well, you're not only aerating, you're making it evaporate faster, so you're increasing the aromas in the glass. Are we
1: looking for any legs or anything? (laughs) It's <laughs> that a leading question here. <laughs> um, you, do, you, do that, you do that with reds, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, you, can. you can. That's yeah. not something I really – put a lot of stock in. All right. uh,
2: And I have to brag on Jim for just a minute, as we were talking about the wine competition, um, you know, we pass out awards to wines from all around the world, and we give out some some major trophies. Oliver has won many of our major trophies over the years. A few years ago, this Chamberson Rosé won the best rosé wine of the Indy International Wine Competition, beating out wines from... France and Italy and, and Australia and, and, you know, Indiana. And so it was just um, a huge uh, thing, I think, for Butler and great for our industry to be able to recognize places like Oliver and Butler Winery who really are winning major awards and competitions and beating wines from all around the country.
0: Now, we haven't talked any at all about pairings, but what would you serve this wine with?
2: This is a good Thanksgiving
4: uh you know, your poultry mm-hmm. type of lighter fare, not real heavy, not a steak wine. But it's mm-hmm. also just a good, uh, let's say, another good deck porch mm-hmm. wine with cheese, salad, things like that in the summertime.
1: It's that deck porch time of year, too. It is. It's coming, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go to uh, the phones and Tom. Tom? Hello. Hey, Tom. I just
4: wanted to uh, ask Jim and Jeanette about their opinions on the expansion of viticulture as a... Uh, Um, tourist attraction within the state.
2: I always joke that I'm completely for it, um, and (laughs) not just because my job depends on it, but... My husband and I are actually hog and grain farmers, and I keep thinking if I could figure out a way to make people come to my hog farm uh, as a tourist attraction, like people want to go to wineries as a tourist attraction, we'd, you know, we'd be doing great. Um, there are 2 million people who come to visit an Indiana winery a year, and those people, when they are in the state, are leaving you know a couple hundred dollars behind in those local communities. And so wineries are not only great for economic development and community development, it is a great chance to show off what we're doing here in the state. And bring those visitors in, and so the more wineries we can have, the more you know acres of grapes that people want to drive through or get married in or or be a part of, um, I really think the better for you know the economy of the state of Indiana.
1: Now, how have you? You're marketing this with an Indiana wine trail? Isn't Is there an Indiana wine trail? We actually
2: recently? have three trails three trail. in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, about 23 wineries um, are part of one of the three trails. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the Uplands Wine Trail, um, which Oliver and Butler are both a part of, that encompass nine wineries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the Indiana Wine Trail which is the southeastern part of the state that six wineries participate in there. And then we have the Indy Wine Trail that is the Indianapolis area that also encompasses six wineries. Mm-hmm. So um, we have – and then, you know, there's thoughts of some other trails around the state as well as um, the distance between wineries um, li- um, shortens as more wineries open. So we may see a northern Indiana Trail at some point um, or some other trails around the state.
1: So do many people take advantage of that or start mm-hmm. at one end of the trail and they finish up at the other end? Definitely. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Hublins uh-huh. long-
2: is having an event this weekend, I think, with some wine and cheese. Wine and and, and cheese. I know that that this event has always been very popular and, and how people does, will how, go.
4: So how does it work? Well, we just have samples of cheese that we have mm-hmm. that people can try and pair with different wines. Mm-hmm. It's a no-cost event. We do some where people buy tickets, several different events, but this is no cost.
1: Mm-hmm. So people would go to all of the wineries on the trail all How many are on the to? Uplands Trail? Nine, do you know? nine. There's nine. Nine.
3: Nives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think what the trails really do for a, a grape growing region that have kind of, you know, we've all kind of bonded together in the South Central region for the Indian Uplands Wine Trail is it just incentivizes customers to explore the back roads of Indiana, which is so great. We're mm-hmm. very lucky to be on State Road 37, so mm-hmm. we might be able to pull somebody straight off the road that's heading to IU to drop off their kids, you know, mm-hmm. for school. But or they've
0: dropped off their kids who want to exa- celebrate. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> exactly. But it's it's also great that some of the smaller wineries that are tucked away in the, in the rolling hills of southern Indiana, mm-hmm. w- there's a way for... Them, customers to find them, and this trail really links all that together, and it just helps all of the the towns um,
0: kind of yeah. work collaboratively, co- collaboratively together. And you say that's this weekend for the Uplands? What a it's, great it's weekend. It's called Toast to Spring uh, yeah. for this coming mm-hmm. weekend. And it's so beautiful right now, I'm sure that would just be a great way to spend it, the weekend.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks, Tom. Thanks for the call. And our numbers again eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight wfiu dot org slash noon edition. We have about eight minutes to go. Um, I wanted to you know ask about these. I mentioned this before the program. The wine labeling and descriptions are uh, always sort of make me chuckle a little bit because you know I, I guess uh, you know as I said to. Pam, it's kind of power of suggestion because I, when it says that I'm supposed to be tasting raspberries and vanilla, I usually
5: <laughs> try to find them in there somewhere, you know.
1: Um, but, you know, in, in these wines, I mean, how would you describe the ones that we just tasted? Are there particular flavors I'm supposed to be picking up like on this? The
4: well, paint? I look at the back of the label to see. Here. Yeah. So it says, uh, <laughs> the Tremonette is that very floral uh-huh. uh, with citrus is how we describe
1: and, it. And you, you wrote that, right? Right. Yes. Okay.
4: Great literature, uh-huh. so uh, but we recommend with Asian cuisine and cheeses and uh, smoked meats. We've had it with smoked meats with great success. So mm-hmm. we always like to try to do wine and food pairing suggestions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. that's so helpful too. If you're having a dinner party, you need mm-hmm. to know what to serve. This t- this smells. I haven't tasted this one that we're about to taste. So very very different from
1: oh yeah uh, the other ones. What's it smell like? What do you think?
2: I'll tell you, and then you'll go, oh, yeah, I smell that. This wine is from Sadic Winery. Uh, Sadic is up in the northeastern corner of the state, up near Pokegan State Park in Fremont. This is an apple wine. Um. Um, so this is to show that, you know, we make wine from grapes in the state, but we also, you know, have fruit wines as well. So this is something that they use some apples in, um, some local apples to their area, and made a, a nice, lovely, again, summer type of apple wine that you would enjoy on your patio or with friends and mm-hmm. with some aperitifs or cheese. and um just a nice light sipping wine. I've never
0: tasted anything like this but it's very good.
2: It's a very good wine. Um it's actually a, a bit I think this is a a newer release for them. Um but just a lovely wine. Um I would even put this, you know, with your pork dish, um oh, pork absolutely. loin or some, actually. you know, some lovely shrimp dishes. Um this would be really good. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. Really unusual. Um like I said, just nothing like anything I've tasted before. Very it, and it
2: shows that, you know, we, we have such a wide range. There really is something for everybody. We have gentlemen in the state um who are making hard cider. Um, that falls under the wine label. Um, we have ports and brandies and grappas and you know some of those fortified types of wines. So really, there's there's quite a wide range. Mead, um, mm-hmm. you know, we have a meadery in the state mm-hmm. um, that's just making wine from honey. So there's there's a lot going on around Indiana. Well,
1: I know my wife is a big fan of, of Jim's port. You make a port? We do. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Now, so what is a port? Describe a port. A port is a
4: wine that has had brandy added to it. Okay. So that raises the alcohol from what might have been say. 12% up to, we, we run ours around 19.5%. Mm-hmm. And they're usually some barrel aging, and they're sweeter styles as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And Pam, Oliver has ice wines, I know. what What's what's
3: that? Um, our Vidal Blanc ice wine is actually made from grapes that are frozen on the vine. And mm-hmm. it's it's such a there's a lot of TLC that has to go into um, making uh, an ice wine, and so to truly make an ice wine, you actually have to pick the grapes frozen and press the grapes frozen. So we're harvesting our Vidal Blanc grapes typically end of December, early January. You have to be at least under you know maybe 10 degrees Fahrenheit to get a good a really good freeze. What happens when you when that Vidal Blanc grape that's freezing on the vine, you know? goes on past harvest season in the fall, the sugars all really concentrate. So you're getting this just l- luscious, rich, sweet juice out of that, which is going to result in a wine that is quite sweet. So the residual sugar level is is quite high in comparison uh, to other styles of wines. And it's just they're just really great rich wines and um, such a such a treat to taste if you ever have um it know, must be a small
0: run though. You can't Yeah the amount
3: of juice that yeah. you are going to get it really, it's it's really it's truly reduced quite a bit um, because the sugar is so is so concentrated in that mm-hmm. juice. So the amount of juice that you're going to get.
1: Now, are, are those and ports both kind of an after dinner wine? Yeah. a dessert mm-hmm. wine. Mm-hmm. Do you make ice wine,
4: Jim? Uh, we actually bought part of Oliver's crop uh-huh. one year and made an ice wine. It, it's a very luscious honey character, but. Mm-hmm. As the grower, you take a big risk letting that crop hang out there. Uh, You could lose it all before Mm -hmm. you actually get an ice wine out of it. Mm
1: -hmm. All right. Let's go to Valerie on the phone. Valerie?
5: Um, Yeah, I was happy to to, uh, hear that I shouldn't be deterred by packaging because I saw some – Chilean wine at a ridiculously low price in the grocery lately, and it had screw top, and having had good experience with Chilean wine, I bought it, and it was quite drinkable. However, it didn't hold a candle to the uh, Indiana Select from Butler that I had the pleasure of sampling at a friend's a few days later. And we were talking about this cork versus screw cap thing, and you know, in the discussion, I said that I had always thought that the cork served some purpose for breathing, and we examined the foil, and sure enough, there were two little holes in the foil. So if that's not true, then what's the purpose of the two little holes in the foil?
4: Well, if you have moisture between the cork in the foil, you want that moisture to evaporate out, so you don't get mold forming. So that's why those holes are probably there in the foil. Oh,
5: so it doesn't have anything to do
4: with the wine breathing. Uh, pro- there's a lot of controversy about corks and breathing. They've done a lot of studies, and I'm not sure they've ever really come to any conclusion. You, you can have wines that are oxidized with too much oxygen during the production. You can also have wines that are reduced without enough oxygen. So it's a very uh, complicated issue. Um, probably won't be resolved for a while. A lot of economics involved in what closure you use. But uh, screw caps, I, I have to put in a little mention, they are not 100% Either because if the wine is too reduced, they get no oxygen. You can have problems. But if you talk to people in the grocery industry, they have trouble with screw caps on soft drinks because if they get dinged, they can lose the seal. So, oh, yeah, know, every, everything has a
5: mm-hmm.
4: has a factor to it.
5: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: All right, Valerie. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for the call. We only have a couple minutes to go. Uh, I did want to ask about the the aging process of wine. I mean, what, what do you what do you age the wines in, and how long do you age them before you bottle them for sale
4: most of our wines uh from the 2010 harvest we've started bottling most of those will be bottled by july now some of the dry reds that might get some extended aging in barrel or some some other treatment we might not bottle for another even up to a year Mm -hmm. but we always say that wines are like people some people age very well and some don't (laughs) so uh you know that, that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. A lot depends on if the wine is made to be aged or made to be consumed young. Light fruity wines are generally consumed younger.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, do you have? I mean, are there are there years that you say, "Wow, that was a great Butler year"? And you know, if I can get a Butler two thousand and seven or an Oliver two thousand and six, I'm mm-hmm. I'm in in the money. You know? Last year was
4: probably one of a really good year. Those hot, dry summers, the dry fall. So two thousand ten and two thousand eight were probably two of the better years around mm-hmm. here.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I would agree. Agree.
1: Interesting. And what, what, materi- what, what do you age them in? What kind of barrels do you, you use? Are they wood? Are they metal?
3: Or we use oak. Most traditionally it's oak. oak. Yeah, if so you're talking like
1: barrels, a... you're usually talking white oak
3: barrels. Mm-hmm. You
1: know? uh-huh. okay. But you,
4: that... can, you can have French oak. You can have American oak, Hungarian oak. You can have the heads of the barrels, the ends toasted or not toasted, light, medium, heavy <laughs> toast. I mean there's,
1: there's dozens and dozens of different barrels you can use
5: right. they're not
1: alike.
4: Okay.
0: Well,
1: we are out of time. It's just, you know, party's just going to get started. Okay.
0: Did you notice how thirsty our our sound man and our producer look in
1: there? Yeah, there's a big crowd gathering <laughs> <laughs> looking for some leftovers here. Well, I want to thank our guests today, Jim Butler and... Pam Bonin and Jeanette Merritt uh, for talking with us about wines and we hope to have you back Indiana again. Indiana wines. Indiana wines. Hope to, hope to have you back again to do this uh, at least one more time. Well, several <laughs> more times. Yeah. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Dan Goldblatt, engineer Mike Pashcash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
4: And the Herald Times, A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.